Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Dwarf Cast Book Club, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. In this series, we're going through rereading, discussing, and dissecting the four Red Dwarf novels part by part. And in this episode, it's Red Dwarf Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers Part 3, Earth. <laughs> Gathered round, as usual, are me, Ian Symes, uh, Jonathan Capps. Hello. And Danny Stevenson. Hello. And we're also armed with a fistful of comments from our loyal listeners and readers who have been commenting over on www.ganymede.tv. As usual, we'd recommend refamiliarising yourselves with the book before listening, but we will be careful not to skip ahead and talk about future books in case of spoilers. But as it's been a while since our last edition, let's have a recap of what happened last time. Three million years later, Lister is revived by an increasingly senile Holly, is informed that everyone's dead and has a complete mental breakdown. Rimmer is brought back as a hologram to keep him sane, and after a period of bickering, Holly informs them that he's detected a non-human life form. While Lister was in stasis, a civilization of humanoid cats evolved from Frankenstein's descendants, only to wipe themselves out in a holy war, leaving only one survivor, the cat. He joins the others, and Lister vows to get back to Earth. As he's preparing to enter stasis, Red Dwarf breaks the light barrier, and future echoes happens. Meanwhile, on the Nova 5, the ship's mechanoid Crichton causes a catastrophic crash by cleaning the computer with soapy water, which splits the ship into two. Most of Crichton then takes place, but this time, when he's informed that the crew have been dead for centuries, Crichton shuts down completely. While Lister tries to fix him, Rimmer uses the Nova 5's hologram facility to create a second version of himself, and the pair move in together. The newly repaired Crichton reveals that the Nova 5 is equipped with a duality drive, capable of getting them back to Earth within months, but they're out of uranium. Lister, Cat and Crichton go mining, leaving the two Rimmers and the Scutters to repair the Nova 5. Their bickering causes the ship to split into three pieces. The mining party return, walking into a huge argument between the Rimmers. After watching It's a Wonderful Life, Lister decides one of them has to be switched off, and the Gaspacho soup story happens. Then, the crew board the Nova 5 and successfully make it back to Earth. Or do they? <laughs> Let's find out as we go into part three. <laughs> Sliver three. <laughs> yeah, it's a very very short part of the book <laughs> which i think took us all by surprise really didn't it yeah the um i've yeah. got the omnibus version so i found it quite difficult to realize when it was going to end and it ended a lot sooner than i thought it was gonna <laughs> it's only like 40 pages it's tiny so thanks for listening to everyone uh, stay safe and uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's good see you later now yeah last time it was 150 pages worth of uh, of book that we had to discuss and this time it's a lot smaller. But there's a yeah. lot in it. In these in this short little section there's a mm. lot in it. There's a lot going on visually. There's a lot going on. Yeah. So where do we start? Well, it it kind of it tells one complete story. Uh I think which is uh different to most of the other books like it's uh there's a couple of different locations and it starts off it tells you a bit of Lister's story and then a bit of Rumor's story but they come together fairly quickly and the two plot lines converge 
Uh, whereas with the all the other parts, really, there were there were often concurrent things going on, which then didn't pay off for a while. There was mm. like, especially in the first part, all these different threads of um, of Lister and Mimus and what's happening with uh, Saunders and then McIntyre, and how they all fit together was left for quite a while. But this time round, yeah, they build they build this new world very quickly and then bring it crashing down very quickly as well. I always have this kind of these mental gymnastics of like trying to remember which. I mean, don't want to go too far into the second book, but like, how much of Better Than Life is in this book versus the next one? And mm. um, and I always think, oh God, like there's a whole part in this book that's better than life. God, that's loads. And then I read it and be like, oh, actually, yeah, it's a part, but it's like a handful of pages, and that's it. And then I forget that and think, oh, that's weird. The first book's got like a whole part that's better than life, which I never remember that much in it. And then you know, go around and yeah. round in circles. Do you know what I think it is? Uh, possibly for me, at least, in the abridged version of the talking book, they leave this whole part in pretty much intact. Yeah. Whereas they um, they chop loads out of the middle section. Really, I think the start um, is there's quite a lot, and obviously this last part there's almost all of it. So proportionally, it takes up more of the story. If you're familiar with the abridged talking book, which is also the radio shows, yeah, uh, it's a much bigger proportion than it is in the actual book. Yeah, it's an interesting point, that. Yeah, that's a very good point. God, abridged things are weird. I've said this before, and we'll definitely get more into that in the third and fourth books, but because I have more yeah. memory of the abridged versions of those. Oh, there weren't unabridged versions. Um, yeah, not in the audio books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There were unabridged versions in the book. You know, the, the books yeah. were unabridged. <laughs> the book was fairly unabridged. <laughs> more or less. More. Fucking last year we should have been a bridge a little bit. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so yeah, um, so what happens basically is that it goes straight in to Lister living his new life on Earth. It sets up that they basically landed on Earth and became celebrities as the three million year old men. Um, found that Earth was <laughs> like there's a nice detail that Earth was pretty much the same but everyone was a foot taller on average yeah yeah <laughs> that's all that happens in three million years of evolution i was gonna say busted were telling bullshit they weren't living underwater they're just a bit taller <laughs> <laughs> and it, it uh it, it kind of explains away the fact that you know his one and a half year old is tall enough to reach the pedals in his in his car <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a little detail that lister's invented and yeah lister um becomes a celebrity and instantly decides that he doesn't want it and i think that that really fits yeah it's like a really good part of, of lister's character where it's like and i think to be honest it's probably this section of this book that uh and this book in general that establishes that really and that's always something that's uh rung true to me for lister that he you know he just wants a quiet life he's but then in, again in the tv series it's established that his dream is to go and live on a farm it's not his dream to be a multi-millionaire and to, to live in a big mansion. He wants to just go to Fiji and just have a quiet little time in his donut stand with Kachansky. So yeah, the interesting yeah. thing is, where does time sides come from then? Yeah. Because that, that, I guess, that's yeah. a separate whole thing. But then again, maybe that's like he's giving up on the old dream and deciding to try the new thing, and then he's gone all the way that way. You know what I mean? Like he's, and he's, been, alone in, he's been alone in deep space for longer. Uh, by yeah. that point than he has here so he's had more time to just to just want anything that's different yeah it's weird because the time slides lister sounds much more like the rimmer in this book 
Yeah. With the, you know, the, the stupidly high fountain, you know, pissing champagne into the courtyard. It's like that's the kind of thing Rimmer would have done. Or, you know what I mean? It'd been something as ridiculous. And like with the, you know, the salute-shaped pool and things like that. It's like those kind of ridiculous yeah. <laughs> ventures that he wants. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if this was an intention with Robin Doug with both this book and with Time Slides. But, where, um, like, Lister's rich fantasies and Rimmer's rich fantasies sound to me like they, they, they got to a certain point from... The, on their own backs of what they wanted a certain amount of wealth but after a certain point that amount of wealth spirals out of control and like the way Rimmer mm. describes some of the things he has that he's bought and why he bought them like most of the time you're just like oh you didn't want to buy that did you you didn't want to buy that either it's just kind of it's just like a snowball tumbling down the hill to the point where you have this huge opulence that you didn't really want and I yeah. imagine Lister probably got to that point quite quickly in time slides in that in that timeline because here, of course, he he goes completely the opposite way and just goes for the most humble thing you can think of. Yeah. And he's uh, basically living his life in his favourite movie. Unreasonably uh, so. humble in some ways. Like, don't, fix the leak in your bedroom. Just, like, you're going to get damp. You've got two kids in the house. Like, you know, fix the leak. <laughs> well, we should talk about It's a Wonderful Life. Uh in because ge- we uh, we can talk about it in general and some very specific things that are mentioned. Uh, so before we get into it, let's establish our various levels of familiarity uh, with its wonderful life. I watch it every single Christmas Eve, um, and it's like it might be my actual favourite film of all time, much like Listers and Rob and or Doug's. Um, I think Danny, I've seen it sort of a few times, but I realised that um, I found it on. Somebody uploaded it to Vimeo, so I watched it this morning just to absolutely make sure that I had familiarity with it. I mean, I did remember most of it, to be fair, even some of the dialogue I was able to ream off in my head. So there is a level of familiarity that I was well more of, like than I thought I was. So, um, so I'm quite familiar with the with the film, but yeah, I'm only recently kind of a I'm a, I'm a recent convert. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Whereas, and I've never seen it, <clears throat> although. I have read these books many times and I did live with two people for um, <laughs> however many years, seven years, uh, that ha- have watched it every Christmas Eve and referenced it quite a lot. <laughs> but yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah, well, it's one of those films where like everyone kind of knows the rough plot. It's been parodied so many times. Yeah, the Fine Lowy seen... sketch is maybe my yeah. biggest touchstone. <laughs> it's also like in most movies, like Home Alone's got bits of it in, like... You know, there's, yeah. there's, you see chunks of the film and going, oh, that's from that's that bit in that film from that thing, and it's like the, all the little chunks of it are all. If you take every film somewhere, there's a whole film of It's a Wonderful Life in someone else's TV somewhere. Yeah, yeah. there's a bit in The Simpsons which, yeah, there's a bit in The Simpsons which I didn't get for years <laughs> until I watched the film, uh, where they're in a bank and um, Jimmy Stewart suddenly turns up and says, "I don't have your money. It's in Bill's house." <laughs> What are you doing with my money in your house, Bill? <laughs> Words to that effect. <laughs> Sorry about that. Seven ladies. So that Lister assumes the person is the place of um, George Bailey, who's the main character in the film. Uh, in the film, uh, George works in the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, uh, which is the family business that he's inherited from his dad. Mm. Um, but it's always like, uh, who was it that made the point in the comments? Was it Clem? Um, but George Bailey, like the point of the film, um, in a lot of ways, is that he 
uh, has these dreams and aspirations that constantly get frustrated. Um, yeah, Clem's comment. Uh, young George mentions Fiji uh, when he's telling Mary where coconuts come from and talking about going exploring one day. Don't you want coconuts? What's wrong? Are you stupid? Is uh, is what is what he says. <laughs> um, and yeah, there is a lot of uh, Lister and George similarities in that respect. Uh, like Fiji's, obviously, it's a it's a superficial one, but the fact that George has these sort of amb- like Lister's ambitions were never much, um, but he he found himself trapped in the same way that George did. Like mm. George wanted to go out and see the world, and a, a series of events conspire that leave him stuck in the this one little hick town, and he's desperate to get out of it until eventually, at the end of the film, he realizes that you know it's his home and it's where he's meant to be. Um, Whereas Lister in this is uh, he find he's found himself trapped in his real life, um, like obviously he doesn't want to be stuck on Red Dwarf. He doesn't want to be stuck on Mimas. He doesn't want to be stuck on Red Dwarf when the crew are alive, and he certainly doesn't want to be stuck on Red Dwarf three million years into the future. Mm. Um, so when he arrives in Bedford Falls, he's like, ah, perfect. <laughs> he doesn't have to go through the same process that George did. He accepts it instantly. Um, but obviously there are some differences in that George uh, Bailey in the film doesn't own a Shami Kebab Emporium. <laughs> See, I wondered, <laughs> I was going to ask, that was one of my questions. Is that so? <laughs> there is an Emporium in It's Wonderful Life, but it's not called yeah. the Shami Kebab Emporium. <laughs> it's just the, the Emporium. The emporium. Um, it, it's interesting then, so really list, list is the inverse George Bailey because he has to uh, accept that um, Bedford Falls isn't his home and he doesn't belong there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Clem also points out that uh, the girls, girls, girls sign uh, in Pottersville uh, in the film is uh, similar to uh, one that's in Mimus <laughs> in part one. <laughs> girls, 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 and sex, sex, sex. Um, I can talk a lot, a lot about the, um, <laughs> the, the similarities and differences between the film. So in the book, um, you see a few of the characters. Uh, there's Bert the cop and Ernie the cab driver. And yes, uh, the characters in Sesame Street are named after the characters in, in <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life. No, that is an Are they not? No, that is oh. not true. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, so re- I was reading up on this, because I, I read about that the It's a Wonderful Life isn't in the public domain. It kind of hasn't now. It's a bit fudgy, but basically someone forgot to read another right for a short while it was in the public domain, so basically anyone could use it or play it or whatever without having to pay royalties. But yeah, I was looking through a thing that said Urban Legend on the Wikipedia page, and it does mention that um, Jerry Jewell, the one of the pub- uh, Muppeteers has uh, stated that Bert and Ernie, it's a coincidence that they yeah. are called that. But there is a scene, one of the Sesame Streets, where they're showing It's Wonderful Life on the TV and Bert and Ernie are walking past and, and Jimmy Stewart so saying, Bert Ernie, do you not recognise me? You were at my wedding and that stuff. And they get really confused about it. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of a, it's a, yeah, it's sort of like a loose urban legend. And I always, I always thought that Bert and Ernie was named after that because I was like, oh, right, yeah, it's, 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 too, it's too confident not to be true, right? But apparently it's, yeah. it's not. Yeah, because Bert and Ernie in the film are like a double act of friends and yeah they sing a little song together and <laughs> and nearly kiss at one point i'm sure there's it's a wonderful life slash <laughs> uh there's a bit in the in the book where it describes bert as the only cop in bedford falls and i was going to make a pedantic smart ass point that there are other cops that you see in the film then i was talking about this with uh, joe this morning and we think that all the other cops that you see in the film are only in the sort of alternate reality section of the film uh, in the version where George doesn't exist and so uh, Bedford Falls goes to shit. 
I yeah. think those are the only places where you see more cups than Bert. So it is in fact correct. Yeah, in the good version of Bedford. Falls. I think that's true. Yeah. Well, you could also uh, say that. I mean, it's probably fair to say that Lister's version of this idealized place called Bedford Falls is in itself extra idealized. It's got like another layer of idyllicness on top of it. It's based on his memories yeah, of the film, like exaggerations. Than, yeah, yeah. Because I'm is that so? What about the scene in the film where, like, uh, a fifteen-year-month um, baby drives a car to the shop to get some milk? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't quite happen. No, that's in the deleted oh, okay, scenes. Right. That was something. That was not, not that I'm obsessing over that bit, but that has yeah. stuck in my head for thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> Just on that, I like that. They they talk about all the advanced things that um, Jim and Bexley can do, and one of them is that they change each other's nappies. <laughs> and it occurred to me reading it back, like they are advanced enough to be able to walk and talk as adults and but drive a still car shit themselves. and go out and get milk, but <laughs> they haven't been toilet trained yet. Like the priorities, <laughs> I'd sort out the toilet training before the driving. <laughs> but there's a, a I think Clem mentioned it as well. I said I always find the stuff about Jim and Bexley quite creepy, and they imagine yeah. them looking a bit unlifelike. And I was like, yeah, I can kind of see that where, like, they mentioned, like, unconvincing CGI, like, you get in adverts where babies sing and dance or... Yeah, or Alibi like, Beale yeah. some weird baby. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it, it's sort of the bit that makes Lister kind of really... Like, you really hammers home the idea to Lister that this isn't going on, that there's something really wrong about this. And it's something that he's just kind of... <laughs> like perception filter type thing of like never really noticed it before and just always accepted it as normal and it's only when he realizes that something's wrong that he realizes hang on a minute that's weird isn't yeah. it that they do that it's like a dream it's like yeah. when you're dreaming and you have those doors of what they call doors of expectation where you kind of walk into one room and and it's another place but you just accept it and then when yeah. you wake up and kind of look back on it you're like oh that was that was weird that can't happen that's impossible like but you don't in the dream you have no question like that you just accept it yeah. and i think that's what better than life feels like it's very dreamlike and very sort of a bit fudgy and messy and you know that's what you know but your brain doesn't kind of question anything until you start to become a bit more aware well i don't know about anyone else but like when with with my dreams when um i have this exact thing of the the moment where you suddenly realize everything's a bit stupid and then you think oh wait a minute it's a dream and then a split second later that's you're awake it's the yeah. it's the process of waking up unless you're one of these people that can lucid dream which i wish i was which i've done but, um, i've done twice that in my life really which is a really oh, strange mate. experience yeah yeah you can i remember once to do it more. i ate a cd this is so this, talking about dreams is probably the most fucking bullshit thing ever <laughs> but basically there was, i was in i was in college and i was uh, somehow i had a cd and i was nibbling the edge off the cd and my mate was going insane because he had to take it back to the library and <laughs> and at one point i literally went oh it doesn't matter it doesn't matter he goes why and he says because this is a dream and um, this this is that's no consequence. And I remember having that realization that I was <laughs> that it wasn't real. And that was that was the first time I've ever been aware ever. But yeah, that was a strange experience. But yeah, lucid dreaming still never happened twice. Then he turned into an Alsatian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bloody dream. <laughs> so I guess I mean obviously he doesn't wake up in this book, but you know it's the start of the process. As soon as you that's as soon the process, as the things yeah. start crumbling down around you, you're just like, no, I need to be away from here. You know. Yeah, we were talking about um, It's a Wonderful Life parallels. Yeah. Um, there's a character in this uh, in the book called Horace who works in the bank. Uh, Lister goes and pays in his $14.25 every week. Um, and I couldn't remember whether there was a character called Horace in the, in the film, but I looked it up and there is. And he works in the bank. 
Um, and he's, it's such a small part that it's actually uncredited. Um, but <laughs> when in a, the cr- one of the crucial scenes of the film, when um, Uncle Billy goes into the bank to pay in the takings from the building alone, he goes up to the counter and says, hello, Horace, and, and starts the paying him in. So it's not like a proper character, but it's established in the film that Horace works at the bank, and so Horace works in the bank here in the book. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Horace does need, does definitely need to just at least go through the motions of security, because, I mean, <laughs> accidents can happen. Like, you know, a gust of wind could blow a lot of that money away. Like, he has to be more responsible. <laughs> Well, it's conflating. Yeah, in the in the film, the bank is owned by uh, Potter, who's the baddie. He's the evil um, entrepreneur, businessman who is like a slum landlord and all the rest of it. And so the bank security there is really tight, and it's really yeah, and an officious and like you know, not uh, not carefree. <laughs> so that that's Lister's word. layer then adding that yeah Lister's version of the bank is like Potter doesn't exist in this Bedford Falls because Potter represents everything that's bad about Bedford Falls Mm. and in his idealised version Ah. everything is in how it would be for George if George was in charge Uh, but other other Bedford Falls places that make it from um, film to book we've mentioned the Emporium Um, there's Martini's Bar as well um, which is uh, in the film it's uh, Martini is is a character that George helps out early on. He's one of the first people that um, George gives a mortgage to when he um, when he takes over the building and loan and helps him build up his business empire by giving him a business loan as well. And um, and later um, gets drunk at Martini's bar and gets punched and it kind of starts the whole <laughs> winding. It basically leads him to attempted suicide. So it's quite a major place in the uh, film. Yeah. And then Gower's drugstore as well, which is where Lister goes and buys the cold cream that helps him to figure out the messages on his arms mm. um george bailey worked at gower's drugstore uh when he was a boy um and stopped prevented uh, mr gower from accidentally well maybe accidentally maybe deliberately it's it's ambivalent in the film uh but um he <laughs> gower um learns that his son has died and either by accident or as an act of revenge tries to poison uh, some kids by giving them uh, rat poison in their medicine, and George Bailey prevents him from doing so, Jesus. Uh, and sort of saves. Yeah, it's a it's a bleak film. Yeah, it, it, it starts off. Yeah. That's in like the opening ten minutes, Capsy. <laughs> <laughs> it's really grim. That's usually the bit that start that I first cry at is when George tells uh, <laughs> tells uh, Old Man Gower, "You did something wrong. You put something bad in these capsules. It's not your fault. You didn't mean to." So Mickey Mouse is in this film. <laughs> Mickey Mouse is in it. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Like, I definitely need to see it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, watch. the fact that Gower's drugstore is just mentioned casually is actually a major, major thing in the in the film. They're, it's like they're ticking they're ticking off the references, right? Like all the places. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What's What's weird though is and, having read Red Dwarf first before I watched It's a Wonderful Life. It's really weird how familiar it felt already before I'd even watched it. Because there were yeah. so many references to stuff, it was like, oh yeah, that's it. Oh, Old Mangawa, that's a thing he'd mentioned in the book. There's a thing, and there's just so many little references. It's like, oh right, yeah, they 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 really went to town on this referencing. <laughs> Even um, to the point where Lister returns home for the first time in the book, and he finds his wife uh, Kachansky hanging up tinsel, and the kids are playing carols on the piano. Yeah, and there's a point. Um, sort of as the film is reaching its conclusion where George goes home and his wife Mary is hanging up tinsel and his kids are gathered around the piano playing carols. 
Although in the book, uh, they're playing Silent Night, and in the film, it's Good King Wenceslas. In in the film, are they murdering the carols like they are in the the book? A little bit. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's a plot point where she it's is one of his daughters is practicing and um, like she's improving as it goes on. Sure. And so at first she is, yeah. It's kind of repeating and irritating because it's constantly yeah. the same four bars over and over, and then yeah, Jimmy Stewart. Why do you have to keep playing that song? Oh, why? Why do we have to have so many kids? <laughs> he just gets so frustrated God. with life at that point. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, George in the film has four kids, and uh, Lister only has two, so he's yeah, fair he's, enough. That's a lot more. And sensible. if 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 he had four kids this day and age, he'd be the the thing that he'd be like losing his mind over would be Baby Shark. Like for the like <laughs> time he heard Baby Shark. Why do we have to listen to Baby Shark all this fucking time? <laughs> he doesn't say fuck in the film. Well, he would these days. Why? Why is Mister Potter got to be such a cunt? <laughs> it's, it's not Mister Potter's fault. It's 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 her, it's his writer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Uh, I have one final point about um, the specifics of It's a Wonderful Life, and it's a very pedantic one. Uh, but it's interesting for some reasons. Uh, so Lister uh, lives at uh, 220 Sycamore Avenue, um, which is where towards the end of the end of the book. He, that's where he, he pulls up. They give the address. Yeah. George and Mary live at 320 Sycamore Avenue. Yeah. So the numbers are so similar <laughs> that is it... Is it supposed to be the same and Rob and Doug have got it slightly wrong or have they deliberately made it just a bit different? I have a feeling it might just be like, it could be just simply be a typo. Yeah. yeah. I always, obviously I picture it as the same house yeah. and it's like, again, no major spoilers for the film, but like it's a, it's a major theme in the, in the film is that house mm. uh, because it's, it's an abandoned house that um, they, obtain and do up and that's why it's a bit rickety and that's why there's damp and that's why there's leaks it's because they've built it up with their own two hand well two pairs of hands um and so naturally i that's what i picture uh for lister is living in that house it's possible i mean have we checked whether there's a correction in the omnibus or the <laughs> audiobooks <laughs> danny get your omnibus out i'll try and find uh, it's 220 it's 220 in the omnibus it's definitely 220 yeah uh, do you know what? It seems like well, the sort of thing that would get picked up if you're changing, you know, Kevin Keegan and making other little adjustments. So maybe, maybe it is just yeah. they, they want it to be adjacent. To, I mean, well, then again, he's literally called George Bailey, so um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe not. I mean, it's written twice as well, so maybe it's intentional. I don't know. Mm. It's these fascinating yeah. new details that you, you tune in to, to Dwarfcast <laughs> for, I think. So in, in the storyline, it's been... It's been two years that they've been doing this for. Yeah. So that's what—that's how long has passed for them, anyway. I was going to say, is that yeah, how long they've literally point. been in the game, though? I think I think that's I think it's real time. I think Ooh. that is it, I think it is two years. I can't remember whether we find out or not in the next book. Okay. Uh, but just but I, I genuinely can't remember whether they clarify that or not. But just judging from this book, which is like I can do because I've reread it very recently. <laughs> last night um the it's it kind of implies that everything happens in real time mm. that's the impression i got both from josie at the beginning from dennis and josie and also mm. just the fact that um that it describes that Crichton saw them 
So Lister like eating whatever eating his own vomit Ugh. as if it was a delicacy yeah and that they'd they'd stumble round and, and fall downstairs and get up again laughing and bleeding like it implies that whatever they're doing in the game they're enacting in real life which yeah. is kind of how yeah it, it sort of has a bit of a ready player one vibe about it which doesn't make any sense but yeah it's uh it's kind of terrifying the idea that what they're doing like if they're running and jumping off a cliff they're just literally jumping wherever they are and yeah. be damned the consequences. That seems a bit inconsistent to me. I think because like Josie was sat giggling, and Cat was sat giggling when they find him. So I think there's maybe sometimes they're up and about, and other times oh, yeah. they're. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe it's like sleepwalking type thing. Yeah. Where people who sleepwalk can be having a dream and in real life be completely still, and then in other parts of the dream they act it out. Yeah. Some. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Because uh, that thing of like Lister was sat eating his own vomit as if it was a delicacy <laughs> makes me think of stage hypnotism uh, of like having someone an onion and they eat it as if it were an apple and <laughs> like <laughs> uh, like this is a bit more of an extreme. But I don't think Paul McKenna would make someone eat their own vomit, but you you know I wouldn't put it past Darren <laughs> Brown. <laughs> so, yeah, they're all cunts, all of them. <laughs> I mean, there is a there is a clue in in as much at least Lister has experienced five or six hundred um, Christmas Eves. That's what he says. He says yeah. how many Christmas Eves have he had five, six hundred, and it's like so he that's did. at least you know nearly three, two years worth of yeah. Christmas Eves he's had. But he, for some reason, he hasn't twigged the fact that it's uh, you know basically like a Grand Dog Day kind of scenario. But maybe it's like if you think of it more of like a computer game that we'd be. Like any any kind of computer game from our that's got a story, there's bits where there's like cutscenes, I guess, where like a cutscene can happen and like that doesn't take real time to pass. It's like obviously there's bits where you're controlling it, and there's bits where things just happen to you, and so maybe mm. two years in game time doesn't have to mean two years in real life. Maybe yeah. there's bits where it just skips a few years, yeah. skips a few months, or like you play it, you play. Or it could be like one of those things where it passes, like The Sims, uh, where time is running, uh, like at a rate of a minute per hour or whatever. They it can is. crank up the game speed if they're wanting to get past like a boring bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting, and, and and they are all linked as well. So there's there's a certain, I mean, I guess they're linked, but they're off doing their own thing, which presumably is a is something a that's land. intentional within the game is to split them up. Um, so they could be all experiencing their own different time streams, basically. Or maybe it's like um, Football Manager when you play that in a in a LAN or a network game of that, where you're God. you're all managing your own club, uh, but you have uh, but you have to progress at a certain point because you've got to play. Yeah. Like, every now and then you'll play each other, and so you've got to wait for the other person to catch up. So they're off doing their own thing. But if Lister wants to go and visit Rimmer, he might have to wait until Rimmer's caught up with him. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, Lister's fantasy, which we've talked quite a bit about. But then, uh, so let's chat a bit more about the specifics of Rimmers, because uh, yeah, Rimmers is insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like completely unrealistic uh, to quite <laughs> to quite a severe degree. Um, 
What was that? The comments, uh, Capsule, you mentioned when you were reading it that you you thought that you'd had a, a really clever realization. Yeah, that no one else has definitely not uh, definitely not thought of this. But yeah, I, I thought, well, Rimmer's uh, a lot like eighties Trump, isn't he? With his with his buildings named after him that are all identical. And uh, yeah, it turns out when I actually read the comments on GNT that people had made <laughs> that point about three weeks ago. <laughs> but I, uh, I kind of felt so like Dave. 80s Trump mixed with Bruce Wayne because he's he's got his R and D department, you know, and um, with the solidogram stuff, which feels more Bruce Wayney. But there's no Batman there. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't he doesn't use his powers to help people or anything. No, he, he used them to himself. become <laughs> fabulously wealthy. Um, I actually haven't checked when it comes to net worth. He's worth like certain tens of billions, right? Well, he said he's the yeah. third richest man on the planet. So, yeah, uh, he's. I mean, I, I'm just wondering how close Bezos is to him at this point, because obviously his wealth <laughs> was dreamt up to be something completely out, like as ludicrous as um, spit roasting a giraffe or time travel. <laughs> but now it's probably a lot more realistic than any of the other bits. <laughs> sorry, sorry, to go back a bit. What? <laughs> as in cooking a giraffe yeah, on a spit, spit roasting. <laughs> I mean, I know rich people get up to some weird shit, but you'd have to be tall. It is not my fault. You'd have to be tall or on (laughs) stepladders. I mean, they have to be on stepladders to carve off bits, and they yeah, or it'd be a giant Valkyrie. But we'll get to that one. Uh, Yeah, just to uh, mention a couple of the comments. Dave says there's something very weird about Rimmer in BTL essentially becoming a parody of Donald Trump. It feels a bit too harsh, even for Rimmer. Yeah. Has there ever been any indication that he aspires to that kind of corporate success, or was that just society's shorthand for success in the era when the book was written? Because yeah, sure. this was the eighties after all, <laughs> the yuppies and the Thatchers and all that. The height of anger, all of that as well. Uh, Tombo says, as for Rimmer being like Trump, I guess that was a co- pop culture thing because Biff in Back to the Future, uh, Back to the Future Part Two, essentially becomes Donald Trump as yeah, well. Yeah. And that was like when that was the sort of the art of the deal era of Trump. Mm. Where yeah, and it was, and it now turns out people have done a lot more, given a lot more scrutiny to Donald Trump in the last few years. Not that everyone pays attention to it, but uh, he was a really bad businessman. It turns out, <laughs> yeah. But his him as a as a symbol as an icon was definitely the like the American dream type ideal. The the way that that I think the game works is that you have like aspirations for something. But in order for the game to kind of hide the fact that, like, you know, if you were to think of something and it magically appear, that would seem strange to you and therefore wouldn't yeah, be realistic yeah. and your brain would kind of rally against it. So they kind of touched upon this in The Matrix as well. If they make a perfect world, people rallied against it because it was there was something wrong with the fact that it was too easy and too and too agreeable. But I think better than life, the way that it seems to work is you, you have to kind of get it in a realistic fashion and... You know whether that's through manipulation of you know how you perceive things or you know anything like that. It's like they'll get you there, but it will take sort of you know slightly pseudo realistic means to get you there. So Rimmer wants a real body. You know to have that, he has to have the technology to be able to do that to make it you know like logistically possible. In order to do yeah. that, he has to have money. In order to do that, he has to have a business. You know, you know. So it's like it all happens sort of in a you know in a logical sense, but. You know, as ludicrous as it is, it is ludicrous, the idea of, you know, creating a person out of nothing. So in order to have that, you have to have this ridiculous scenario around you in order to make that happen. So that's how I think the game functions. 
So being being the third richest man in the world isn't necessarily Rimmer's ambition. No. Uh, but in it's order to fulfil his in order to fulfil his fantasies, yeah. it's a means to an end. Like he has to be rich in order for this to happen. Exactly. Like he wants to he wants to get the best of um, Julius Caesar and Napoleon Bonaparte <laughs> and George Patton. So he has to invent time travel so that he can yeah, beat them. And he risk. has to be a billionaire to do that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like there has to be some logic underpinning the whole system, otherwise, you know, you 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 would yeah. you wouldn't work for you. And I like how the game uh, adapts how much logic it applies based on like the psyche of the person they're dealing with. Because like Rim, yeah. Rimmer's Rimmer's got quite a broken psyche, but he's also quite. Um, what am I trying to say here? Like his ego's a bit higher, so he can maybe he's a bit more credulous about crazy things happening to him because he thinks, oh yeah, I'm just that good. Like I'm just that good that I'm you know this rich and I can of course I can invent these ridiculous things. But to Lister, it looks completely ludicrous because he's mm-hmm. much more humble and much less credulous about nice things just suddenly happening. And then you get up to the cat, which is like all of that just dialed. Like we'll get to that, but it's all dialed way yeah. past. So it's yeah. like the game is able to the game falls down by being multiplayer here because Rimmer Lister is really can really easily see through um Rimmer's fantasy because there's two different psyches clashing, like two two mm. different levels of credulousness, basically. Two interesting points there. One, that that is also how sirens work. Um because they say that that, that was the level of sophistication um required to fool the cat. Uh, whereas for the others, um, with Lister, it, they had to pretend to be Kachansky for mm. you know the giant fireball. That's a good uh, point. But also, yeah, um, Rimmer Rimmer's psyche is such that at first he thinks, yeah, well, I went back to Earth and I became the third richest man in the world because I deserve it because I worked hard and this is this is all yeah this is all right. But then as soon as Lister points it out, that part of his brain kicks in where he goes, oh, actually, I'm a failure. I'm a terrible person. How could how could this have happened? I've been foolish, and yeah, it takes Lister to come along and burst his bubble, and then he re- then he starts to disbelieve it and starts to realise that Lister's right because his he his basically his brain rebels against himself. Yeah, like it does in the in the in the TV series, but in a much more lightweight and sort of quick and and less complicated way. More so than anyone, Rimmer is really two people, isn't he? And 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 like you know, you have the yeah. pompous person, and then you have the more down to earth, more somber one that hates himself <laughs> that's, that's obviously more realistic if you were thinking about this in like a you know how the game would work you wouldn't if that was a thing that could break you, your um, uh, immersion then they wouldn't allow those two people to meet because then one mm. universe would cripple the other so you know mm. it would be a yeah <clears throat> and I guess that's similar to in the TV series that you have conflicting fantasies uh, so Rimmer his dad turns up in the TV series and um, calls him a complete smeghead, but because that's the cat's fantasy, but that actually has a detrimental effect on Rimmer's enjoyment of the game. <laughs> so, whereas here, yeah. it's it's much bigger scale. So yeah, you're right. They shouldn't have allowed multiplayer. No, so they shouldn't. Then, then maybe you should never be allowed there. to see each other. But allowing much multiplayer like, gets um, more much people. like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> yes. Grand Theft Auto should never have fucking bothered with online because it's a piece of shit. Yeah, I'm sure Rock, Rockstar when they look at their bank balance and the Oh, tens of millions <laughs> generated purely by online. That's thing. not this the point. Shit. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was, you're absolutely right. Like, I know. I mean, going back to how how they acquired their wealth. I mean, Lister did acquire that wealth as well. He just didn't use it. He just you know got rid of it and he went to where even, he wanted. Yeah. Because they because the whole thing about them crashing in the Sahara, 
like yeah. the whole in like the whole thing about them actually going back to Earth. And I think there's a mention. Uh, Dave mentions it. Mm-hmm. Says the arrival on Earth in the Sahara feels incredibly cinematic. Another one of those moments that you can't help but visualize in the imaginary movie version of this story. It's also hard not to think of the aborted finale to Series Eight and wonder whether it would have shared any resemblance. Genuinely, yeah. I think it might be the picture of that Mick did. Yeah, <laughs> that has yeah. the picture of the but dwarf stuck dwarf in, the, in, the, not... in the in the dune. Yeah, yeah. It, that's exactly how I see it in my head. It, it, it feels like the final shot of of the TV series is that sort of thing of because there were a whole talk about like they were going to have like um, a shot of the ship crashed into Earth and then people exchanging insurance details and stuff and like, that would yeah. have been the perfect that could have stopped at that point that would have been it. Um, but yeah, I was I do kind of see that in my head, and it's a it's a really evocative image. Um, we will uh, post a link in the show notes because uh, that's that piece of artwork is still available as a as a wallpaper. <laughs> if you for if you have 60. a monitor, <laughs> if you have a monitor that's eight hundred by six hundred, we're your man. <laughs> wow! So that's from like two thousand six. Like wow. we need yeah. we need an upres version, please. Yeah, we'll get on him. But yeah, it was quite you know, the whole idea of them. Like they, they they made that make sense to them. You know, the whole idea of the people being a bit taller. It's like that was their that was their logic of saying, well, you know, we have got back to earth. It would seem unlikely, but they're still there. But there's something different about yeah. them. So they fit, you know, the, the, that, yeah, the, there's always some concession. It's like there's always something where you can um, you can rationalize it. It's like, well, of course, not everything's exactly the same. Everyone's a foot taller. Yeah, it's like what's the minimum. Uh, difference like what's what's the the minimum amount that can be off off normal for yeah, it to make sense that to not changes much of the world but yeah uh, Rimmer's fantasy I made some notes about it, some of my favorite details of it um, is that as part of it the space corps officially adopted the Rimmer salute yep. as their <laughs> main salute is like yes tick that one off <laughs> like that Rimmer is so petty that he would make that one of the Things that he needs to fulfil his his ultimate happiness, he needs to tick that one off the list. Uh, he also employs a man just to press a lift button. Yeah, which yeah. we're kind of it's unspoken that oh, it's because he's a hologram, but then it immediately kind of addresses that, doesn't it? With him just firing yeah. him and pressing it himself, and then introducing the solid gram. Yeah, which the solid gram by the way is the hard light drive. Yeah, effectively, yeah, 100%. Um, they invented it in the book, and then four years later brought it into the TV show. I think in the book it's more like flesh, like the bodies are literal flesh bodies, right? Like it gets more into that in the next book. It does go into but, a bit more detail yeah. for like how that works in the next book. Yeah, it's not much of a spoiler to no. to say that the next book is includes some sections based in Better Than Life, considering the name of the, the book. Name life, yeah. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> oh fucking <laughs> hell! Uh, a big part of Rimmer's fantasy is his wife. Uh, Juanita Chicata. <laughs> I who... know she came with her card. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't quite work, but I, but I will accept it. <laughs> the Chicata, D- D- you know, like uh, yeah, mm, no, it came under her on Steam. There you go. Uh, my wife's in self isolation, having come back from the Caribbean. Jamaica. No, Matt Hancock did. <laughs> <laughs> Satire. So Juanita is definitely not racist. <laughs> the Brazilian bombshell. <laughs> it's it's not. I mean, it it works because she's fictional. Like yeah. even within the fiction of this book, she is fictional. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the most enlightened 
uh, <laughs> portrayal. Yeah. But, you know, they say they can't write for women. You can blame Rimmer. I mean, you could probably very convincingly yeah. blame Rimmer for this. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Rimmer is invented. Like it says a lot about Rimmer and like his attitude towards women, which is something that is explored in the TV and series, it's and parallel universe, and particularly, yeah, that he, he he's one of those people that that probably thinks that he's a normal, uh, has a normal healthy attitude, but actually his attitude to women is a bit objectifying and it, it stinks a little bit. So he invents Juanita, who he kind of hates, and it's 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 not a very pleasant thing to dwell on like he invents this woman who is who in his fantasy is his ideal woman and yet there's enough about her that he can feel contemptuous towards and resentful towards yeah it's uh yeah i don't know how much of that is intentional but you, you can read quite a probably lot something that. to do with his mother yes tell me about your mother <laughs> uh there's also the fact that she's 19 um <laughs> and they've been married for two years so, mm. yeah, that's why he lives in France, I guess. <laughs> it's borderline. <laughs> yeah, it's Bordeauxline. <laughs> Are we playing the sophisticated music for that one again? <laughs> yeah, that's it's it, it's more than fucking borderline, I'd say, but it's it's. It, again, it is just it's dialing everything up to the extreme with 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 Rimmer. You, you, it is designed for you to 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 feel like disgust with him, but then it kind of fits into kind of the thing I said earlier about how like when well, this sort of lifestyle is clearly the sort of thing that can like just get away from you, yeah, and like become out of control. And before you know it, you are this contemptuous person, and mm. he probably isn't that pleased with himself to have married a 17 year old either he just doesn't really vocalize it and then maybe that's why subconsciously i mean maybe it's part of the thing of like the game can't be too perfect in order to make it realistic yeah um she has all these faults and like she they don't have sex for 18 months because her breasts are too expensive uh, <laughs> on the insurance and uh, she instead sleeps with hugo the pool guy <laughs> rimmer's even though it's rimmer's fantasy it only allows him to have like the pettiest amount of revenge on Hugo. <laughs> like he stops him from being able to shop at M and S, and he st- he stops him from being able to buy Heinz baked beans, and so he would never enjoy truly great beans on toast ever again. <laughs> it's like he could he could have him killed, or yeah. like he could Two have points. his entire family ruined. It's a greater display of power to show it to sort of ruin his life forever. Yeah, that petty amount of no um, I mean, for you, what, Hugo. so firstly, why does the book, why does it censor the name Heinz? I don't think it does. I this think is, it's, I think it's the whole thing about overly verbose. I don't it. know. I, for me, it's rumor. It's rumor being just making a connection between his name and the okay, thing he right, wants yeah. to punish him with, so he can't forget it. Can I don't mm. know. Yeah, That's, it sounds because they mention M and S by name. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think maybe it's just a amusing like bit of prose i mean christ they mentioned donald duck and thingy later yeah, on so true. it's not like as if copyright's a problem the second point i wanted to make is that um aldi baked beans are better than heinz baked beans so there you go. <laughs> jesus <laughs> it's a bold statement that's an advancement we've enjoyed since um 89 um so you know i'll forgive them for that's true that out. they didn't have <laughs> supermarket baked beans have changed in the last 30 odd years <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> there's another bit i've just noticed in my notes that um when Lister comes to 
uh, Rimmer's office and Rimmer offers him four pounds. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of um, Father Dick Byrne and Father Ted. The bets that he has with Ted are always four pounds. Five pounds. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that great sitcom written only by Arthur Matthews. <laughs> Uh, I will mention actually this is something I on the audiobook version of this I don't know what it is but uh, Chris uses the voice of the um, butler who tells him that Lister's turned up essentially the Gilbert of the of the story and he goes yeah. his name is Lister he claims he was your cohort on the Red Dwarf and I was like Red Dwarf you've done it again you've done the Red Dwarf thing again like, it drives me insane I was like Red Dwarf why is it Red Dwarf and it's Red Dwarf hmm. The butler shouldn't be like, oh, he claims to be Lister. It's like, oh, it's one of the most famous people in the world. Yeah, one of the three oh, most yeah. famous people in the world. <laughs> he should know who he is. Maybe he's just a bit out of touch. Like his his whole life is the job, you know. Doesn't read unless the news. he's just saying, well, yeah. this is the guy who claims he's that guy. In Rimmer's fantasy, Lister is so unimportant and forgettable that, that even his know, butler, even yeah. even though he was briefly the most famous person in the world, everyone's forgotten about him by now. Mm. Apparently, the gentleman's name is Lister, sir. <laughs> I like the way that um, when Lister comes and points everything out, Rimmer then starts to realise, like we've said, and like there's one section, uh, it's in part six, where they both um, sort of start to analyse their fantasies and what it says about them. Mm. There's a comment uh, from International Debris, uh, Lister and Rimmer are both embarrassed about, about their fantasies and jealous of each other's and is really interesting. They both know their their ideal lives are somewhat cliched, and if they knew they were playing the game, they might want to challenge themselves a bit more. I thought with Rimmer, if I had a slight criticism of that section, is that Rimmer's inner monologue spells it out a little bit too much. He vocalises the conclusions that we as the reader are supposed to draw, and I'd kind of already got there. Yeah. Like, of what, what all these things say about Rimmer and his psyche. Uh, but yeah, it is... Do you think it's like, rushing a little bit? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, we have, like, this section is quick. Mm. Um, and it's, like, in the... And that's the only bit where they kind of... Where they're, it's basically when they're travelling to Denmark to see um, to see the cat, they pause and, and start to think about it. Mm. And so, yeah, it kind of goes through it all. And, that, and that's it then. And then we never see uh, Rimmer's fantasy world again after they, after they leave. And, yeah, and Lister is worried that it's him that's the loser because, like, why didn't he go for this ridiculous life that Rimmer had and why he he thinks he's a loser for wanting to live in an old movie yeah whereas I can very much sympathize with wanting to live in an old movie (laughs) the um yeah this is you can you can tell that kind of this line of thought this is like death to be better than life like this is the sort of thing the sort of like thoughts that the game would be trying to protect itself against and does and does, I guess, but we don't really see how it does it with Lister. He does it um, with Lister. He says, oh, I'd like to be married to... I'd be married to this um, actress. Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino. And uh, and then the air hostess leans over him and it is her. So it's... And then he it, so the game is fighting back and trying to, yeah. to coax them back into this dream world by just doing it incrementally. So you can... That's, you know, that's the game... Try like breaking its own rules of you can't just wish for something and it appears because it's like we're losing Lister. So we need desperate. to get him back. Yeah, it's like a last ditch yeah. attempt kind yeah. of thing. It's but desperate. If that's because... the way you want it to work, then we'll make it work like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's desperate because they're they're currently en route to Cat's Minecraft server. <laughs> 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 and 
and it knows that shit is going to get real as soon as they get there. Uh... And then we can yeah move on to Cat's fantasy, which um, is enough to completely uh, <laughs> shatter any illusions that Rimmer may have been clinging on to that, it was, that this was so, real life. Talking about the game protecting itself, do we think that the game has deliberately split them apart and more specifically put Cat in the remotest place it possibly can in order to keep yeah. them away from his insanity. I think it's more the cat wanting to do that, like, by default. Okay. And then, therefore, his... I, I don't know, maybe... The, I don't know whether the game is responsible for it, if you make the first move or if it does, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's that bothered about being isolated. Cat went in first, didn't he? Oh, that's oh, true. So, so he'll have built that world first. He'd have, he'd have had that, and he'd have established that world for himself. That's true. And then Lister and Rimmer went in to, to find him. Um... So yeah, maybe it, it then spawned Lister as far away as possible from the cat. Yeah. <laughs> then they do have they have the shared history, even though they entered the game at different points. Um, that they all like, obviously oh, they all. Yeah. At came least they, at Earth, least but... that's what the that's what the game is telling them what yeah. happened. That's yeah, the yeah. So maybe that's reset the yeah. cat. They could maybe, reset him. Yeah. yeah, the cat will be somewhere in the in the in the game. The cat will have been. You know, really in that thing over there in Denmark, but for the sake of Rimmer like, and Lister's thing or Lister's one, because he goes in next. So Lister's one is then, and then it's like then for Rimmer they kind of reset it, and it yeah. kind of makes like if you if you to tally the three stories together, it wouldn't make sense for any of them. But you know, each one would have their own and unique start. They, they retcon it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it works like a like a prologue type thing of like when they actually start playing the game they're in their fantasy mm-hmm. and that's the back that's the backstory and so yeah. they just play out the backstory the fmv starts and them. then <laughs> the cat was yeah. basically just kind of running around an arena just shooting at walls and it and there was a little bit of text to say <laughs> waiting for players <laughs> <laughs> loading please wait Leal at the start but when you say but shooting the... at walls he was actually um shooting actual dogs <laughs> actually, yeah, yeah that's dark that is a really <laughs> unpleasant <laughs> part of the book <laughs> It's a bit grim. Yeah. It's a bit Very grim, but it's realistic. It's one of those things where it's like the way that the British public in particular react to violence against animals yeah, versus dogs. violence against humans. If they were humanoid dogs that he was shooting, no one would give a shit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because they're if actual they, dogs. They was, it's cause it, yeah. cause they think they're meant to be chasing something else, and then it turns out the dogs are the thing they're actually shooting. I mean, it's, just, it's pretty yeah. clear. It's interesting morality, because like Lister was, was quite happy to be on a hunt, and he was quite happy to shoot some other defenceless animal. Something, There's not that yeah. particular defenceless animal. Some sort of fox, I'm probably expecting. Yeah. yeah, but it's before the fox hunt ban, so I don't know. But it's interesting that this game clearly brings out the. I mean, I don't know how this fits with Lister. I do have some thoughts about his setup, but it does bring out the worst in them all. Like because as as anyone's unfettered fantasy would would bring out the worst in them. And Lister mentions God. I've got to have a word with Cat about his sexual politics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although he has just come out of like a fifties fantasy of you know working man and little wife at home yeah. with kids Putting so up the tinsel. yeah well that's an element of it's a wonderful life which is questionable but i i have a um a headcanon <laughs> it's okay yeah. it's like in it is a film that is made in 1946 yeah, so it's start. very much yeah they like any modern values that aren't reflected in the in a film made in 1946 you've got to just kind of deal with but like in the dystopian version of Bedford Falls, um, the the 
a terrible fate that befalls Mary without George is that she's an old maid i.e. she never marries and she just works in the library and wears glasses oh, that's and that's terrible. supposed to be like the terrible thing that happened thing to her that could have happened to her but I uh, I think it's in my head <laughs> what's wrong with that is that actually in in the proper timeline in It's a Wonderful Life Mary was a hero uh, in the war effort back home uh, she organised um, uh, collections and she um, helped out and she did food drives and clothing drives and all the, the kind of things waging the battle of Bedford Falls as they called it mm. um, and it was George that brought out that potential in her by being a loving husband and a supportive figure in her life and, and brought out the best version of Mary so for me it's not about the fact that she uh, works in the library and has glasses it's, it's about what she didn't do rather than what she it's the unfulfilled yeah. potential yeah yeah the Inquisitor uh, would, have that's, a, that's a would, would have an opinion, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is that this mentions that Valkyries and stuff is something that does come from Red Dwarf in the TV series anyway, because it says, uh, like, you know, what, or that, what what kind of loveliness would lie behind those doors in... Um, in Camille. The, Camille. Camille, yeah. thank you. Jesus yeah. Christ, I'm tired. Uh, and yeah, it says, well, knowing no, you were six-foot-tall Valkyrie warrior made it with a scanty arm and a cleavage you could ski down. It's like that whole thing, <laughs> like, that's all in here, that's all... Yeah, that's in this book. Oh, so is that a shared a shared universe thing between the books and the TV series? Because at that point, they've come out of Better Than Life, and Lisa says, "Well, knowing you, it'll yeah. be this it exact thing be, because yeah, I know what your fantasy what is, is because we saw it in Better Than Life." Every yeah. episode is in a slightly different uh, set in a slightly different universe, and that one, Camille, mm-hmm. happens to be in one where they're in Better Than Life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's funny. Like it's, I mean, obviously the the job of this bit is to present something so ludicrous to Lister and Mimmer that they cannot deny that they're in better than life. Like it, it Yeah. And as a result, it's a bit of a weird shallow bit. <laughs> um Yeah. Which kind is of has to be. Yeah, it kinda has to be. It kinda has to be C D, it kinda has to be you know, a bit a bit weird. And uh, but as a result it's kind of it's not my favourite um but in fact this whole the whole better than life setup really isn't my favourite because it uncomfortable in lots of different ways in ways that I at the time when I first read the book wasn't really wanting out of a Red Dwarf book I wanted the comfy status quo stuff when I was Mm. you know younger and so these bits always kind of sit a bit off with me as a result and it's the fact that which is something that they hang a lampshade on that this version of Better Than Life is so different from the TV version of Better Than Life and so when it's like you know when they did the future echoes section and the me squared section, you can accept the differences because the premises were so similar. They were the same premises and they went in slightly different directions. Uh, whereas this, and they mention like earlier on in the book, there's an earlier, earlier, uh, more primitive versions of the game worked like this, and they describe the TV series version. Yeah. In fact, there is one single similarity. There's one thing that happens in the book that also happens in the TV series, which is. Um, the cat singing, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna eat you, little fishy, and uh, saying I like my food to move. That is the only bit that they yeah. use virtually verbatim, except in this instance, it's sung by um, the super group, uh, Jimi Hendrix and <laughs> Mozart. <laughs> oh, that was the thing. Uh, so the band, uh, of, like Cat's fantasy band, that's got Mozart and Jimi Hendrix and all these like all-time great musicians. They mention Jelly Bean on computer programs, like for a start. On computer programs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 1989. <laughs> they got computers. <laughs> I had to look up who Jellybean was. 
I don't know, Danny, you're more of a music buff than me, you might know, but it's a guy called John Jellybean Benitez. Right, okay. Uh, who was a, a dance music, this is according to Wikipedia, a dance music pioneer. Uh, he produced records for Madonna and Whitney Houston. Uh, he also had a handful of hits in the UK in the mid to late 80s, so oh, wow. he like had a few chart hits he must have been under big the name Jellybean. Well, he wasn't that big. And I don't know whether it's a joke that they've included him in this list of all-time greats in this in like a kind of uh, Mozart, Mendelssohn, and Motorhead type way. It's Brian Kidd again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, they're just picking on this book. Or I don't know whether that's a joke, or they really liked him and thought, well, this type of music is the future, and like he's going to be in years to come, he's going to be considered this. He, he was neither too successful or too much of a joke to make either really yeah, work it's, it's just a really odd mention also it is like a... if they were going for a joke they'd have said um jive bunny yeah uh, because that <laughs> was the big novelty act in in 1989 it is weird even in 1989 to say on computers because the word <laughs> you know these synthesizers they're so expensive and <laughs> synthesizers were around you know and that was the yeah, electronic music were, was in the but this is also kind of when the era of things like sampling and um, oh, I see, man. Yeah. that kind of stuff it's where more... computers were more an actual tool than a than a, a mean you know like they, they were more sort of involving um it means in a sort of paul hardcastle yeah type way um kind of... chris lowe pet shop boys that type of computer programming yeah as part of music yeah so yeah they should have had they should have said paul hardcastle if it was a if it was a genuine I, I thought be. Jelly Bean was like I thought it was just like a made up. It's, it's like um, like a future it's like guy. The, yeah, the the musicians that Rufus brings out at the start of Bogus Journey, and you, oh, like, you have Pichelle all the real musicians. Kind of yeah, and then yeah, you have yeah, the fake yeah, yeah. one from the future. Yeah. So after after that's happened, we get a uh, Crichton turns up, and we get a little flashback to explain what actually happened. Because I'd kind of forgotten as I was reading through, like whether we found out at what point they entered the game yeah. precisely. Mm. and we do and they have the nova 5 ready to go they did that like all that stuff was real the nova 5 is there and they can still get back to earth it's i'm looking forward to when they do that actually the when they get out of the game yeah. and actually use the nova 5 can't wait yeah that's gonna be a huge part of it it's gonna be amazing i'm sure <laughs> definitely gonna be a major part of it here's an interesting thing so just before Crichton turns up um in a really like it's a really cool moment Crichton turning up but like they're they're talking about Lister's pain in his arms and they're mm-hmm. musing about like you know what could it mean what could it be so maybe Holly did it and like at no point until Crichton turns up do they ever mention Crichton yeah is the game I don't know hiding him like he's they're trying to make them forget him because maybe. he's like a wild card you know yeah I think part of it is that at this stage both the characters and the book are treating Crichton as a bit of a guest character, That's which true. is something that we discussed in in previous uh, editions of like how much of the main crew is Crichton supposed to be considered at this point because of, because of, it was released in between series two and three, so yeah. was it written from a series two mindset or a series three? And I think in this instance, they may have kind of forgotten about Crichton. And maybe the reader is supposed to have kind of forgotten about him as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And he says Master Holly as well, which is just like so weird. <laughs> like he's a child, Master, Master Holly. <laughs> well, like yeah, C-3PO. just but that's that, that's David Ross Crichton again. I don't know we've talked about yeah. this, but that's you know he's a hundred. He is a hundred percent David Ross Crichton, isn't he? And yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. 
But then if if they're debating like who could possibly have made my arms hurt in person, like why they might they... have remembered. Yeah, yeah, they should have remembered that robot that Lister just spent weeks rebuilding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a strange one. And who would have like surely in the game would have accompanied them on the Nova Five, like for when they crashed into the um, into the Sahara. Surely Crichton would have come with them. Yeah, that's true. So maybe true, they left Crichton behind on Red Dwarf to look after Holly. Yeah, so Crichton wasn't part of the celebrations, right? In the flashback, it's just yeah. Oh no, it isn't. No, Crichton's there. Crichton's there. So why didn't Crichton go in? Well, I guess he says, you know, it, 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 there's a throwaway line. It's like, oh, I could have saved you right at the beginning. Um, yeah, I found out that I could you. enter yeah. the game or something. I could, yeah, yeah, and also that Holly spent. A long time persuading him that he should uh, cut list, uh, burn Lister's arms. Yeah, because it was break Asimov's law. Yeah, again, that's a that's a very old, like old style Crichton stuff. Because like our Crichton would would do that. Like he'd you know he'd do it straight away. But you know he'd maybe have a conflict, but he would just do it. He would come to that conclusion that the best yeah. thing to do would be to do it much quicker than yeah. this Crichton does. Because modern, like the 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 eventual Crichton, is fundamentally first and foremost he's useful, and he's always useful. Yeah. Whereas this old Crichton is so caught up, he's useless. And I think, yeah, maybe that's yeah. where it gets forgotten. Which is, it's, it's something again that we explored a bit in part two of um, when they went on the mining mission and Crichton couldn't get anything done because <laughs> yeah. he was so. He's so focused on his programming and and what a mechanoid should and shouldn't do. Just one more coat of beeswax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, though, maybe slightly like as we're getting towards the end here, it maybe feels like things are getting tossed off a little bit, and they've maybe realised uh, we're going to put a lot of this in the next book. Let's wrap things up. Maybe. Um, yeah. Well, it is. It's a deliberately ambiguous ending. Uh, isn't it like it has that iconic uh, last line that everyone remembers but as we discussed uh, briefly at some point I can't remember when but I think it was on a podcast <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> that, yeah. Um, there's some there's a lot of ambiguity about what that what it actually means uh, because basically what happens is that Lister goes back to Bedford Falls and, and kind of decides oh just one more night and so we don't know for sure at this stage whether it was just one more night whether he managed to exit the game or whether he got stuck there and, and didn't leave after all and there's that line he couldn't leave them on christmas eve but of course in bedford falls it was always christmas eve yeah which i've always um, talked to mean lister fully intends to not leave them on christmas eve but he has already forgotten the unreal mm. aspect that it's always christmas eve therefore the unseen narrator of the story is telling us he will never leave it could have been the last line of any of the novels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas I used to take it to mean um, he couldn't leave them on Christmas Eve, but then it was always Christmas Eve, so he might as well leave because you know no, no one day is going to be better than any other day. <laughs> That's kind of how it's like his brain was already making that logical step of going, well, it's always Christmas, like oh, it's always Christmas Eve. I'm not going to forget. However, I now um, agree with you that the intention of it is to show that he's trapped in a loop and he can never leave. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't occur to me until we spoke about it. I guess it's one of those things with the, with the book, and it's like we haven't really, and this is why we're doing this because we haven't given the books the analysis that they deserve over the years, yeah. and so it's only now that I'm starting to challenge ideas that I've had about the book since I was like eight or well, whatever the only, it was when I first read them. The only way to kind of jointly 
like pick a book apart. It's much easier with a TV series because everything is broken down into episodes. So you you know you can talk yeah. about a particular episode one night and the next. Day. But with books, it's so difficult and it's so easy to forget like um, significant bits that are kind of lumped in two thirds of the way through that you kind of forget exist until you read it again. So yeah, this is really the only way we we're ever gonna like properly analyze everything. Um, it's much easier with a TV series, and also it's much more skin deep with a TV series than it is in a book. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot to get into here. Yeah. Have we it's... actually mentioned uh, the the sentence that we didn't mention at the back end oh, yeah. of the last part? Good because, point. Yeah, we it would, there was something we alluded to last time we didn't didn't actually mention because we, we didn't know. If anyone hadn't read it, we thought it was us. Yeah, we didn't didn't know. Uh, I've got it here if you want. Um, yeah. So the, yeah, in the last little part of the previous um, in, of part two, uh, where they basically ends with them getting back to Earth. Um, strange, but years later, whenever Lister remembered it, he remo- always remembered it in black and white. And something else, the memories came in a rush. There were no insignificant details, only significant ones. He remembered his scalp tingling as the cargo bay doors boomed open. Where well, we all had that sudden realization when we read it last time. It's like, oh, he felt a tingling in his scalp. Yeah, yeah. That's the game headband borrowing its way in. Yeah, yeah. The nodes and the black and, and white everything from that point on. It makes it. It basically it's telling us that this is a dream. It's very, very subtly done. Where you yeah, don't very actually. Subtly pay attention to it that much because we haven't because it's the first time I noticed it when I read it last yeah. so. so he he remembered it in black and white uh, the memories came in a rush he only remembered the significant details yeah is yeah is telling us that this didn't that actually happen but in such a subtle yeah. way yeah perfect absolutely yeah. perfect yeah. really so nicely good. done and it kind of leads quite um, nicely into uh, a comment from Dave uh, he asks um, the first time you read this book how long did it take you to realise they were in better than life because I don't think I have an answer to this because I can't bloody remember. That's the that's the problem <laughs> with something that I'm so familiar with. Yeah. Um, even though, like we say, I haven't really analysed it so much, I am really familiar with it. So, but I do kind of remember because I was so young when I I got into Red Dwarf and I wanted to experience the the novels as well. I was perhaps a little bit too young to actually read, sit down and read them. So I the first time I experienced either of the first two novels was the cassettes the audiobooks and right. initially i only had the abridged ones and i i distinctly remember getting mm. to listening to the last part of the last tape of uh of the infinity one and when i realized that it was better than life i thought oh fuck am i listening to the wrong tape i probably didn't think oh fuck because i was eight but, <laughs> oh drat um I thought, is that, have I put the wrong tape in here? Because the next book is called Better Than Life. This isn't supposed to be better than life. Yeah, no. yeah. So you, so, so yeah. That if you know, this is the thing. If you read the book and you knew the second book was called Better Than Life, then it's basically signposted for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things. I think if people didn't know about It's a Wonderful Life as much as you could do when you read this. Yeah certain things would be more obvious than others. So if you didn't know about It's a Wonderful Life, then you might not pick up on the fact that this is actually just playing through that whole universe, which True. I think is probably how I first read it, because I don't think I knew 
fully that this was about It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey and all the rest of it, and, mm -hmm, all, and all the references were there. So I guess it's supposed as it's it's more of a case of how much were you going in with this with knowledge of that first, and then that would sort of signpost you. I think. I was, it, it did occur to me as I was reading through of like at what point are we the audience supposed to figure it out? Are we supposed to get there at the same pace as the characters or or not? And I think it's structured know. so that the first glimpses you get of Lister and Rimmer's fantasies, it's structured so that, you know, the first subchapter is about Lister's fantasy. And like you say, if you didn't get the clues about about It's a Wonderful Life, then you'd just accept it. Mm -hmm. Um Rimmer's fantasy is obviously a lot more extreme, but realistic at this stage. Mm. And it's only then when in part three is when Lister is sat looking at the messages on his arms and trying to figure out what that means. Lister starts noticing the self nappy changing twins being weird and how weird it is that he found this version of Kachansky that's identical to the Kachansky he knew. Yeah. And it's at that point that Lister figures it out and you go, oh, yeah. And you figure it out at the same time as Lister. I think that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, sure. And that is quite early on. That's like, I mean, it's not a big section, but that's only the third subchapter of this section uh, where he sees U equals BTL. Which is interesting because they actually do foreshadow that with Lister's old, with the old Lister's arm in the future echo, which shows U equals BIL, yes. which is sort of like slightly healed, but you never find out what that really means until later anyway. Yeah. So it is there. It's just the fact that it's, it's obscured enough that you're not going to. I'd forgotten really about that. Yeah, guesses, it's, for, so. it's foreshadowed so early on, but in a yeah, in a hidden way, in yeah. a mysterious way. I think so. in a in a in another oh, like yeah, you know, if it was a different type of book, or maybe if if the whole of the Better Than Life stuff was saved for the next book, they could have maybe really gone for the bait and switch, like really mm. tried to convince us that this is actually on Earth, and then and really really slowly drip feed and maybe that would have been more impactful um because they, you're right they do really quickly they they don't bother with the you know, with the pretense even back to reality keeps the conceit going for the audience for longer than it than this book <laughs> yeah, does yeah, yes. yeah it's not like there are, there's obviously there's weirdness in you like because you know as a as a sitcom aficionado that they you know it's not likely that they're completely changing the premise of the show at this stage but within the fiction of the show it's not until after um Crichton slash Jake shoots the cop that they start to show that they're in a hallucination yeah so we only really get there five minutes before the end of the show mm. whereas here it's you know it's effectively the first few pages of this part is when we find out yeah, it's like the intention is never to fool us. But the yeah. way that the you know the way that the story bears out that you know it's been two years since they returned to Earth and all that kind of stuff, it's like that does kind of give credence and credibility to the whole scenario. You know, where Lister's mm. managed to find somewhere that you know he's, that, that all kind of exp in the way that the game would do it for them, it's the way the book does it for. I them. was just about to say what you're describing is what we've been, um, what we've kind of decided between us is how the game works. It's yeah. like at first when we first get introduced to this world, there's enough credible details that make us think that maybe this is where they're going with it. Mm -hmm. And it's only when Lister starts pointing out the bad shit, the weird shit, that we notice all the weird shit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's an interesting point. You decide whether it's interesting. Better than life <laughs> no. in the fiction of the universe must be a subscription payment model. Because if it was a one-time <laughs> yeah. purchase, it wouldn't care whether you played it for five it minutes or not. 
Yeah, it must be some automatic thing that the longer you stay in the game, the more you pay. The more you pay and, um, you know, hook it into your bank account and it just, you know... But then it would deplete your funds pretty yeah. quickly. Like, you wouldn't... It would basically ruin you because well, you, be if you're in the game, you're not, you're not working. <laughs> yeah. You're not earning any money. Also, it's illegal, isn't it? It it, it It's treated yeah. like a drug, so you, you couldn't have, like, a, you know, a subscription... Well, it, it it is eventually. It like it was probably when it was first released wasn't illegal, and it was only when they found out mm, true. how addictive it was and how damaging it was that they made it illegal. So it it was probably based on a subscription model at first and designed to be a subscription model, <laughs> but then when it was made illegal, they it was it was sold on the black market for uh, like a one off. Like it must be a hacked version. Yeah, uh, get gets rid of the subscription just, and just you just before you the, go in, you get like the do 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 do, do like the hacker scene uh, intro with eight bit music <laughs> and <laughs> press one for infinite lives. Uh, all you need to do is plug a game genie into it, and then you can yeah, exactly. get out whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a there's a bit on the back where if you add Sonic two to it, you can. <laughs> <laughs> you can live out your fantasy of running through the Emerald Hill Zone. N- Knuckles is George Bailey. Oh, <laughs> uh, could someone please make um, George Bailey in Sonic the Hedgehog two? <laughs> I just want to play Sonic two as Jimmy Stewart now, with no like special abilities, no, no super yeah. speed, no spin dash or anything. He can't get just past him, the first. Like... The, no- the normal human just walking through the Emerald Hill Zone. Gets to Ice Cap Zone and Clarence jumps in the water. <laughs> Picks up stones and throws them at windows and skips along singing Buffalo Girls. <laughs> That's all in Act One. It's weird. <laughs> anyway, I think we probably um, yeah. That's the, the sign that we've come to the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is a, one thing I do want to mention actually because when uh, Crichton does go through the whole spiel about what actually. Um, happened like the little backstory about the the thing about Petrovic, and yeah. there's all that rumor thing about Petrovic being a, a game dealer and no one really knowing whether it was true or not. And rumor tried to you know, but it actually turned out that, to be true. Yeah, and he yeah, was bag. and he was selling stuff on the back now, which is kind of a bit. It, it kind of guts me a little bit, like when I hear that, because I'm like, oh, it kind of validates rumor, and you like, <laughs> it, I don't. Not that yeah, I don't want rumor always to be right. It's just I don't right. want to be right about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we will have uh, room for any more interesting little points like that because uh, it's time for our small points. So let's have a little sophisticated sting of music and uh, take a look at some small points. So first of all, I'm going to go through and uh, read some comments that we haven't already mentioned. Uh, Sai says... Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers has one of the finest final sentences of any novel I've read. It ends with an enigmatic smile and a knowing wink. Just marvellous. Oh, very true. Dave says, I feel like this is the first time the book takes something that doesn't quite work in the series, albeit only to budget limitations, inevitably making it too difficult to realise, and decides, right, we can do this better. It's so gloriously over the top and outrageously large scale in places and sells the idea of BTL much better than an overcast day out in real. Yeah, and yeah, when we talk about like there's a you know a fantasy movie version of this in our heads, 
Like it's it, this section is going to be very expensive. <laughs> yeah. The Bedford Falls bit you could probably do quite quite easily. The giraffe spit roast scene is like that. That on its own t- took a month to shoot. That's going to push it up to an eighteen as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. In twenty years' time, just put a, a scene of Starbuck at the end of it, and it'll get it down. <laughs> but yeah, I guess like now it would be a little bit easier to do mm. um, on a in a film version with. Because they've yeah. got computer programs that uh, Jelly Bean, <laughs> yeah, Jelly Bean uh, can pioneered. <laughs> Jelly yeah. Bean and Chris Veal can sort it out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, trying to film this in the eighties probably wouldn't have uh, gone very well. The caviar sculpture of Juanita's naked body and the uh, salute-shaped swimming pool and the three identical buildings and the eight-foot Valkyries. Well, the buildings would be easy because you just have to make one of those and then copy it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. International debris. Uh, I love how Rimmer is so unimaginative that his Brazilian wife is called Juanita Chicata. Uh, everything about that marriage is unpleasant, from the fact that she was probably 17 when they met to the use of the word acquired. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. that struck me as well when I was reading it. He'd acquired her as a wife. Yeah. Uh, another one from Dave, which follows on from a, a previous point. Um, this version of Better Than Life is a much darker and more disturbing take on an idea from the series. Doing BTL like this wouldn't have worked in the show, even if they did have the budget. But it's fantastic drama for the book. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. No. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really want an emaciated Lister and Cat coming out of it at the end. No, the the, the image of uh, Lister eating his own sick is not something that particularly kind of fits on BBC Two at eight o'clock. So, and that's yeah. you know uncomfortable or not, it's what you want for the the book version, isn't it? Especially when you've got a successful TV version that already exists. Is you want something yeah. that is being done that can't be done. Mm-hmm. Ever on TV, so yeah, yeah. and it, yeah, not just for budgetary reasons, but thematically, it's got to be different enough. Uh, International debris mentioned something about um, like Rimmer basically wanting to ruin Lister's fantasy just cause, like <laughs> yeah. he says he's going to go like level the whole place and turn it into a maggot farm just because he decides like you know what I mean it's like very sort of vindictive, like that's something that like that, I don't know whether that's more the sort of the Trump side of Rimmer or whether it's just Rimmer being a prick. Do you know what I mean? Like that whole thing of him just wanting to just mess with Lister, even though he has absolutely no reason to like. Yeah. Like he hasn't thought about him for ages, and yet you know. And it's dangerous because that um, you know those sorts of thoughts may lead to you know certain destructive things happening in the future if he's not careful. Because better than life, you know, is there to fulfil your fantasies, and if he's thinking about destroying things, it's a very good point. Mm. So think on, think on. <laughs> I think that's about it for small points from the comments. I have a, a few little bits that we've not yet mentioned. At one stage, uh, we meet the Prince of Wales, um, who, in Rimmer's fantasy, uh, asks for the soup to be sent back because it's too cold. Now, when it says Prince of Wales, we assume that it's Prince Charles, the current Prince of Wales, but it could be any Prince of Wales from history, really. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The audiobook bears out that it is Prince Charles. Also, I was going to say I couldn't quite remember, but like I've got a feeling Chris Barry did. Yeah, he does spitting image basically. But at this point, we don't know that Rimmer's gone back in time to get um like at the time we're introduced to Prince of Wales. I assume uh, this yeah. was the three million years in the future Prince of Wales, as if there'd be a fucking royal family three million years in the future. It's quite weird I because hope. it's like the way that Rimmer is written as as if he's from Earth, but he's not yeah. from Earth. Yeah. There's a very fudgy yeah. thing going on with Rimmer with that. Like there's a lot of references to stuff in England that Rimmer really shouldn't be that knowledgeable about. 
Yeah, you're right. Because he's not yeah. from that time or um, space. I mean, he's not. Io, considering there's like you know the private school sort of vibe of Io, it's probably a very close British colony sort of a you know. Oh, maybe yeah. Shares a lot of the you know it, it revels in the the history of 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 Britain. You know. That's a good point. I yeah, I get the impression that in the red and there's not much evidence, but it's kind of like in my head, this is how it works. Of like yeah. The various different places are colonized by Earth, and they're kind of colonized country by country. So, America has probably got a load of moons, and Britain's got a few moons, and Russia's got a load of moons, and stuff like that. Yeah. Because nationalities are still very much a thing. Like Peterson is Danish, um, obviously Lister is British, and especially in the books, you've got Petrovich and like, it, and the mm. captain's American, and you've got all a melting pot of different um, nationalities, but they're maybe not necessarily born on the earth version of those places like you'd consider yourself british if you were born on a british colony i guess it's the same way that americans can describe themselves as irish when like eight generations ago their family was irish but they still consider themselves irish yeah Yeah, which would make them eligible to play for the football (laughs) team so rimmer can can be uh culturally british even though he's not He might not have even been to Britain for all we know. No, no Britain might not yeah. exist. I mean, Britain, you know. But... I mean, we're we're fucking going that way. Early space colon colonization, which thankfully we'll probably well we won't see in our lifetime. But like, you can just imagine how much nationalistic bullshit will be involved with all of that. Well, that's that. The only reason that we've landed on the moon is nationalistic bullshit. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> like true. America and the Soviet Union having a pissing contest that ended up someone pissed on the moon. Uh, my other small point is that uh, there's a callback uh, to Hugo Lovepole. <laughs> yes. uh, so <laughs> when uh, they're on their way to Denmark, Lister's watching a feature on MTV. It's got uh, Rimmer is the sexiest man of all time. And third is Hugo Lovepole, <laughs> who's the singer of uh, Baby Don't Be Ovulating Tonight. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I've got actually, I've got one point here. Um, it's got kind of more of a, a, lang- a question of language is that Better Than Life itself is referred to by Lister as a different plane of reality, like a couple of times, rather than it being Mm. uh, virtual reality. It's not ever referred to as virtual reality, which is what it is. It's a different plane of reality, as if it's almost, it's a legitimate strand of reality, just the wrong one, rather than a created one, you know? It's Multiverse 101. (laughs) That's very much a philosophical question, isn't it, really? Yeah. In Back to Earth, uh, Crichton points out um, that because any fictional universe is a potential universe, then multiverse theory suggests that it exists. Uh, okay, so interesting. So the, the reality whereby um, Red Dwarf is a fictional TV show exists, and that's obviously our reality. And there's the, the joke about they probably think that they're the real ones and that we're the fictional ones. So yes, if you subscribe to that theory, then the then any virtual reality is an alternative plane of reality. It's good that Doug yeah. was planning back to Earth way back in eighty <laughs> nine. Uh, it's it's definitely deliberate. It's definitely a question yeah. of perception. That's what kind of drives what a reality is. But because it's how you perceive the world. Describing it as a plane world, of reality so. gives it legitimacy, and the whole point of this is that mm. it's not a legitimate plane of reality. Uh, otherwise, mm. they would be happy to just stay there. Because and it's, yeah, it's enough, not their physical bodies, you know. But their physical bodies will die, and therefore their brains will die. Yeah, I just wondered if it was maybe 
it was maybe um, a lack of language that they had in 89 of these sorts of concepts. Yeah, because this is this isn't quite virtual reality. This is a step beyond virtual reality, but it is the sort of thing that has been actually talked about by serious people as the future of entertainment. People like Gabe Newell and fucking Elon Musk and Hideo Kojima. They've all they've got they've got this yeah. weird trio of um, like brain trust thing going on where they're talking about this sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, it would never be called another plane of reality. It would be like it would be augmented reality or um, yeah. artificial reality. I don't know. Your point about if if this was an alternative plane of reality, why would they leave? That also reminded me of Back to Earth, because in that, Lister uh, realizes that he could stay and have everything that he wanted and be with Kachansky, but then realizes, nah, I owe it to myself to go back to actual Earth. To go, you know, go back to not Earth, go back to actual reality and and not. This and I think Lister would probably, given the choice between ideal life and real life, would choose real life, but maybe Rimmer and Cap wouldn't. Are there any more small points, or should we open up our small passages? My small points have trapped in the zip. Look at what this numbnuts did. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are. This is my small passage, um, cruelly stolen from Ian. Um, Rimmer watched her naked tanned bottom as she clomped down the summer house steps and wandered over to the group of people eating their barbecued giraffe okay so it wasn't spit roasted it was barbecued (laughs) (laughs) this whole thing that's why I got really confused yeah (laughs) no they cat spit roast something doesn't he probably does yeah I think think that's in backwards and it doesn't end well (laughs) okay so here we go a group of people eating their barbecued giraffe steaks he scanned the group Lenin, Einstein, Archimedes God and Norman Wisdom Uh, it's not actually mentioned here whether this is God or Paul McGrath but it's functionally the same person (laughs) Uh, Wisdom was staggering around laughing hysterically with his jacket half off his shoulders suddenly without warning he threw himself up into the air and landed on the floor Lenin, Einstein, and Archimedes looked down rather disdainfully. God splurted out his mouthful of Cinzano Bianco and bellowed uncontrollably, tears streaming down his face. That's comedy, God was saying. That is comedy. Let's face it, Vimmer thought. There was at least a marginal possibility that Lister was right. <laughs> I always hear uh, in the audiobook... <laughs> Chris's voice for God. That's comedy. God was saying, that is comedy. (laughs) Of course, that's what God sounds like. He sounds more like this. I like Guinness. (laughs) And God drinks Cinzano Bianco. (laughs) They've really got a thing for Cinzano Bianco. Yeah, I keep mentioning it. Yeah. Uh, My small passage is... um, Crichton, it's a bit of good Crichtonness, and there's not much Crichton in this part. So, uh, but this this bit tells you a lot about him as a person at this stage. But still, the three of them remained in the game. In the end, Crichton had no choice but to enter himself. And, well, it says it's either that or Crichton had no choice but to enter himself. <laughs> Depends on how you passage. read it. <laughs> but that's stupid," said Lister. "You'll get addicted too." Crichton shook his head. Holly was right. I'm immune. I could have come in right at the start and rescued you. Immune? said Rimmer. Why are you immune? 
Crichton cracked his face into a hollow grin. I'm a mechanoid. I don't have dreams. I don't have fantasies the way you do. I have very few expectations or desires. Very few, said Lister. And you do have some. A Valkyrie appeared, bearing a brand new, freshly wrapped squeezy mop. Only one, said Crichton, accepting the gift and tearing off the paper. Oh, wonderful. A squeezy mop. Just what I've always wanted. But there is more, without wanting to give too many spoilers away, there is more to that in the uh, in the second book yeah. of oh. what Crichton desires. There's some brilliant stuff, Crichton, in the second book. I, I honestly can't remember much of Better Than Life at all, to be fair. Like, a lot of the stuff that happens in that book, I like. I thought a lot of that stuff was in that book and turns out it's in the back end of this book. Yeah. Okay, so mine is basically the back end of the book. Um, but it's it's sort of... It's it's Lister sort of struggling with the whole the whole thing. Uh, every step he'd taken had led him further away from the dirty, polluted world he loved. First Mimas, then the outer reach of the solar system, then deep space, and finally here, in the wrong dimension of the wrong plane of reality. It was hard to imagine how he could ever be further away from home. The Ford juddered down the main street under the strings of light that hung beneath the trees down the avenue. He passed Horace's bank, and through the window he saw the money still stacked in neat piles on the counter. He passed Old Man Gower's drugstore. How could he have believed it existed? He passed Martini's bar, alive inside with joyful revellers celebrating Christmas Eve. He headed the old car down Sycamore Avenue and slid to rest outside number 220. There, in the middle of the street, a pink neon sign hung over a shimmering archway. There was his exit, just as he'd imagined it. On the other side was reality. It started to snow. Christmas Eve. How could he leave them on Christmas Eve? What harm was just one more day? He turned away from the dissolving exit and crunched up the drive to number 220. One more night of that pinball smile. Just one. He couldn't leave them on Christmas Eve. But of course, in Bedford Falls, it was always Christmas Eve. It's cold dun, dun, outside, dun, 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 dun. no kind of atmosphere. <laughs> And I always associate that back end of that thing because in the abridged version, that would sort of start to ramp up the music during that little speech. You knew you were at the end of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but in the unabridged version, they wait until he's set, until he's finished. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is definitely, as last lines go, you never forget that one. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah. It's one of those endings that works whether or not there's a second book because it, yeah. it's either this is his life now or is, this is what this is the uh, the problem that he's got to get out of next time. I've just got a question actually regarding the actual release dates of these books. So when did when were these books released? What years were these released? Because I have a this... vague memory of knowing that Infinity existed before I knew about it and so did Better Than Life. I think backwards as well. But I think Last Human came out while I knew about it. Roughly off the top of my head, I think uh, Infinity came out on Thursday the 2nd of November 1989 <laughs> uh, and then Better Than Life came out on Thursday the 25th of October 1990 almost a year later then um, yeah but not quite a year later so they were a lot closer together than I, okay. I kind mm-hmm. of thought but then um, there was a big old gap they didn't work on any more novels for a while Last Human was November 95 and uh, Backwards was February 96 so those two were very close together, but obviously mm. split. I wonder whether these this book was meant to be bigger than it was, like it was meant to be Infinity and Better Than Life as one actual thing. Like I know the Omnibus like, does that anyway, I think but so. like whether that was meant to be the book, like and they had to sort of split it up. Like Sonic Three. 
Yeah. Basically, we're back to Sonic initially. Three. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> Sonic Three was originally going to be this one massive mega long game, but they spent too long developing it, so they released the first six zones and then released separately Sonic and Knuckles, which you could plug your Sonic Three cartridge in to form it was one mega game. Sonic and George Bailey wasn't games. it? Sonic and George yeah. Bailey. <laughs> it depends what region you lived in, I think, as to whether you got Knuckles yeah. or George Bailey. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, they are a lot closer together than I thought they were. Yeah, and um, the fact that you've got better than life, I mean, like, you know, no spoilers, better than life, the better than life bit, really now, in hindsight, feels like one chapter chopped straight down the middle and half of it's put at the end of this book and half of it's mm. at the start of the next book. But then, like, narratively, them coming to the decision to leave um, is something that happens at the conclusion of one story. That's true. The fact that they... Spoilers. The fact that they don't then leave immediately um, in the second book is a complication arising from what you expect the the first book to end on. Yeah, that's true. Actually, it it definitely it feels it feels to me like it's two separate pieces of writing. It's just an, a slightly unusual decision to undo an ending that you've kind of already written for yourself in in favor of exploring that world a bit more, which I think is what it was. Yeah. And they, what, you wrote just a few to. months ago. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 also you've written series three in between. Fuck's sake! Yeah, <laughs> these people—they were so prolific at this stage. Like the first first uh, five years of Red Dwarf, six series and two novels. Yeah, and then and then the subsequent uh, twenty-five odd years—not <laughs> that much. Well, you know that if you work that hard. And you've earned your royalties, <laughs> you know. You're going to have a massive row and not, and not speak to each other. Yeah, exactly. Put your feet up. Write a write a comedy about the turn of the other millennium, um, <laughs> and relax. But anyway, all that discussion on better than life uh, can wait for the next edition of the Dwarfcast Book Club, uh, which will be unsurprisingly on Better Than Life Part One. Game over. Game they called part game one over. game over. Come on, whoa, what's happening? Whoa, it's like, um, it's like calling the first episode of your TV series the end. <laughs> True. Uh, so yes, we will be uh, analysing that particular part of that particular book. Uh, so if you would also like to read or reread it, uh, then get your comments in uh, on the article for this Dwarfcast, uh, which will be published over at www.ganymede.tv. Uh, keep your comments brief and uh, bullet pointy so that we can get through them in our podcast and we'll be recording that particular edition on the weekend of the 26th or 27th of September so make sure you've got your comments in by then if you'd like them to be included but next up for us uh, the next podcast we release will be another commentary and that will be uh, the commentary for Give and Take the third episode of series 11 Uh, so join us for that on a podcast feed near you uh, and in the meantime, uh, you can get hold of us on social media. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. And of course, thank you so much for listening uh, to this edition. Uh, stay safe, everyone. And as always, Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. <laughs>